Hello, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast designed to provide short, substantive, and hopefully helpful guidance on discrete litigation topics so that defenders can pick and choose what they want to listen to without having to commit to an hour-long podcast with guests and entertaining banter. This not only saves you time, but also relieves me of the pressure of trying to be entertaining. This podcast is meant to be educational and to help litigators think creatively about the law and their cases. It is not meant to direct how anyone should actually litigate in a particular case. It is also unofficial insofar as the ideas are those of the presenters and do not represent the official views of the Air Force or the Trial Defense Division. Litigation is, of course, an art, and each litigator must develop his or her own style. Always do what you believe is in the best interests of your client, consistent with the law and your professional and ethical obligations. I am Daryl Johnson of the Air Force's Defense Council Assistance Program, and it's 5 o'clock here in the National Capital Region. Please join me as I pour myself a drink to relax, sit down, and share some thoughts on defensive litigation and advocacy. For those who have been listening and actually following along, I have some good news. This week's episode will finally include the fifth installment of our five-part series on impeachment with a prior inconsistent statement. You may be wondering why there were two episodes between the fourth installment and this one, our final installment. Well, explanations are boring. So today we begin with a brief discussion about an article published in the latest edition of The Army Lawyer. The article was written by Army Military Judge Colonel Christopher Martin, and it provides some of his views on the no-BCD Judge Alone Special Court Martial. For some context, from before the Declaration of Independence and up until the Military Justice Act of 2016, every military member facing trial by court-martial had the right to demand trial by members. In fact, it wasn't until 1968 that courts-martial included a military judge. Since then, trial by members has remained the default, and for a service member to be tried by a military judge alone, it took an affirmative request on the record. Ever since the Military Justice Act of 2016, however, commanders have been empowered to refer certain cases to a special courts-martial composed of a military judge alone, with no option to request or demand trial by panel members. Although Congress gave commanders the authority to deprive an accused of trial by members, Congress also limited the authority of the court-martial such that it may not impose confinement greater than six months and may not adjudge a punitive discharge. Thus, the new forum was sometimes referred to as the No-BCD Special Court-Martial. The article we are going to discuss today is from the most recent edition of The Army Lawyer and is titled, Judge Alone Special Courts-Martial, A Tool and an Opportunity. It was written by Colonel Christopher Martin, and throughout the article, he refers to the No-BCD Special Court-Martial as simply a Judge Alone Special Court-Martial. That is problematic because an accused may elect to be tried by a judge alone special court-martial and still be subject to a sentence that includes a BCD or more than six months confinement. That is why I prefer using no BCD special to refer to the situation where the convening authority referred the charges directly to a judge alone special court-martial, thus triggering the statutory limitations on the sentence that may be imposed. Colonel Martin is an experienced Army judge who, at least at the time of the article, was stationed at Camp Humphreys in the Republic of Korea. He reports that he has presided over 14 no-BCD special courts martial, and his article provides his thoughts on how the no-BCD special court martial provides the command with a tool to rehabilitate soldiers and provides the accused an opportunity to argue that the forum choice alone carries an inference of the accused's rehabilitation potential. 
Before I share Colonel Martin's thoughts on the matter, I want to make clear that my view on the no BCD special courts martial has not changed. That is, I believe the no BCD special court martial is unconstitutional. There is a draft motion on the shared drive, and I have a nine-page paper on the topic if you would like some light reading on the subject. But today's discussion does not discuss pushing back on a no BCD special court martial, but rather looking at how defense counsel might best utilize the forum. Also, I recognize that the Air Force, by regulation, has empowered the accused with turning down a no-BCD special courts martial, regardless of what the allegation is. That's not discussed today either. Today is simply focusing on how to best utilize the forum to benefit your clients. Broadly, Judge Martin's three-page article thinks the new forum is pretty useful. He sees it as, quote, an efficient means to resolve low-level offenses, end of quote. For defense counsel interested in potentially negotiating down to a no-BCD special court-martial in order to best serve the particular client's best interests, the article provides a couple of helpful points. First, the article offers ammunition for countering the argument that a no-BCD special, with its maximum sentence of six months confinement and its lack of a punitive discharge, is just a slap on the wrist. Colonel Martin points out that the rules for courts-martial and the rules of evidence apply just as strongly at the no-BCD special court-martial as they would in any other court-martial. This demand for constitutional due process conveys the seriousness of the proceeding and is clearly designed to ensure that findings of guilt amount to a federal conviction, unlike a summary court-martial. Therefore, defense counsel should point out to the command that an airman convicted at a no-BCD special court-martial has a federal conviction on his record which may trigger other collateral consequences, such as making it difficult to find meaningful employment and potentially being entered as an offender into a criminal database. Therefore, the command should not look at an offer to plead guilty at a no-BCD special as letting the client off with a slap on the wrist. It is a serious punishment that will follow the client around for years, and perhaps the rest of his life. Second, Colonel Martin asserts that the forum provides opportunities for an accused that are not as prevalent at other courts martial. Specifically, Colonel Martin asserts that referral to the no-BCD forum communicates that the accused has rehabilitation potential and should get a shot at continued military service. Therefore, where your client has a strong case for rehabilitation, you may want to argue to the convening authority that the no-BCD forum is appropriate so that the client can have an opportunity to demonstrate rehabilitation following his conviction and perhaps even be retained in the service. Once you are at the no-BCD special, you may want to make this same argument. After all, Colonel Martin is a military judge, and he clearly believes referral to the no-BCD forum communicates potential for future service. Maybe your judge will agree. So how do you get to the no-BCD special? Ideally, you will convince the convening authority that referral to a no-BCD special court-martial is the right thing to do based on what the command knows about the allegations and about your client. In other words, convincing the command that even if the client is found guilty of the offense as alleged, the punishment should not be so severe as to require more than six months of confinement or punitive discharge. More often, however, at least in the Air Force, the command will require that you enter into a plea agreement in which your client agrees to plead guilty to some or all of the alleged offenses. Whether a plea agreement is the right call for your client obviously depends on many things, and hopefully you are all starting from the position of litigating every charge and every specification. But oftentimes, the evidence is such, or the client is so risk-averse, that offering to plead guilty in exchange for concessions from the convening authority may make sense. A client might be right for a no-BCD special court-martial because of the comparatively light crimes he or she committed, or the client might be right for a no-BCD special because of who the client is as a person. 
For instance, when the offense was serious, but it occurred years prior and the client has demonstrated through his or her private and professional accomplishments and behaviors that they are rehabilitated. Your argument to the command may be to point out that the command can both hold your client responsible with a no-kidding federal conviction, but also acknowledge that the client, without being caught, had already elected to commit themselves to honorable behaviors in and out of uniform. Judge Martin clearly believes the forum sends a message about the rehabilitative potential of the accused because he notes that he has recommended partial suspension of the sentence he imposed in five of his 14 Judge Alone Special Courts Martial. That may be something you will want to argue to your military judge. The suspended sentence can be further recognition of rehabilitation potential, and it affords your client an opportunity to demonstrate that rehabilitation and perhaps even a potential for future service. Finally, from what Judge Martin has discerned from the Army data, one of the strongest arguments to secure a judge alone special courts martial is to focus on speed. Even though a judge alone special court martial is subject to the same procedural and evidentiary rules as other courts martial, the data indicate they are much faster. As I mentioned, Judge Martin has sat as a no BCD special courts martial in 14 cases, and he reports that 12 of those 14 cases were completed within 29 days from the preferral of charges. We reached out to JJM for the same type of data, but we were unable to obtain it in time for preparing this episode. If I get it afterwards, maybe I'll do an epilogue or put it in the episode description. But in sum, what are the arguments that defense counsel can make in seeking to secure a judge alone special court? Three points jump out as the strongest based on our discussion and Colonel Martin's article. Point one. Stress balancing the weighty federal conviction against the type of rehabilitation contemplated by the creation of the no BCD special court martial. Arguably, Congress sought to provide a forum that would hold the accused accountable, but at least allow for the opportunity of future service. Point two, stress why your client deserves a shot at rehabilitation. It could be because the alleged crime itself is just not that serious, or it could be because of the type of client you have, particularly when those two things would result in next to nothing in sentencing at a full-on special or general courts-martial. That's true for the lowest-ranking enlisted member to the highest field-grade officer. Indeed, Judge Martin referenced an 06 who was tried before a no-BCD special court-martial. The fact that an officer was tried before a no-BCD special demonstrates that the command was acknowledging the lesser gravity of the offense, or the character of the accused, because an officer may not receive a punitive discharge at any special court-martial. Point three is pointing out the time saving to the command. Even though your client gets substantial procedural protections, Colonel Martin's article suggests, at least anecdotally, that by referring to a no BCD special, the command can address the misconduct and move on much quicker than in a more serious forum. This is especially true where the client intends to or agrees to plead guilty. Colonel Martin reports that the fastest he's seen was three days from referral to trial and he points out that the equally important post-trial processing is also often a matter of days. In one case, there was just five days between trial and the entry of judgment, and 13 days was his shortest from trial to authentication of the record. This may weigh heavy in the command's decision, especially if there's any chance at continued service. Admittedly, the Army is very different service from the Air Force. I get the sense that the Army is not nearly as quick to dispose of a soldier who used illegal drugs, absented himself without authority, or got into a drunken altercation. But who knows? Maybe the no-BCD special will kindle a desire to give these folks a second chance. Even if the command isn't convinced, the argument that the forum choice acknowledges rehabilitation potential may work at a discharge board as well. Okay, 
Now let's return to our impeachment with a prior and consistent statement where we will finally wrap up our five-part series by discussing proving up the prior and consistent statement. To give us some context, we have already discussed all the work necessary to identify the prior statements and to prepare your cross-examination, and we discussed the three C's, confirming the in-court testimony, crediting the prior statement, and confronting the witness with that prior and consistent statement. If the witness agrees that they made the prior statement, your impeachment is complete. No need to prove it up. Everyone knows they testified different than the prior statement, and the members will be instructed this evidence may be used when assessing the credibility of the witness. Boom, you're done. But you may recall that we also discussed situations when the witness denies or claims not to remember making the prior inconsistent statement. When that happens, you need to prove it up. Proving up the statement shows the fact finder that there really was this prior statement that you've been talking about this whole time. You can think about proving up statements through the lens of two options. Option one is the prior statement can be immediately proved up with the witness. And option two is introducing the statements that you want to use, the prior inconsistent statements, through someone else, a different witness. Let's explore option one a little bit. Usually, this will mean the prior statement has been recorded in some way either audio recorded, video recorded, or written down by the witness. A simple example would be a text message. You ask the witness about a prior text message. The witness stated that they don't remember if they made it or not. Then off you go. You can prove it up with extrinsic evidence under MRE 613. That might look something like this. And I'm jumping right to the confrontation step. And in that text message, you said X. And then they say they don't remember. Or maybe. I'm marking a two-page document as Appellate Exhibit 20 and showing it to trial counsel. Your Honor, permission to approach and provide the court with a working copy? You do that, and then you hand the document to the witness. Take a look at Appellate Exhibit 20. Generally speaking, those are the text messages we've been discussing. Turn to the second page and look at the bottom message. That is your message. And in that message, you said X. That line of questioning essentially authenticates the prior statement then has the witness acknowledge that they're the one who made it and what it said. It's similar with audio recordings and video recordings, but it requires more preparation because generally you will need to play a clip that you've cut or place from certain time hacks in the recording. Here's how that might look. And in that interview, you said X. And then they say that they don't recall or no, they didn't. Your Honor, I'm going to play clip two from Appellate Exhibit 20 which is the disc that has been previously shown to trial counsel. Then you play the clip. That was your voice in the recording. First, it was the OSI agent, and then the second voice was yours. You recognize that is the recording of the interview we were discussing. The interview with OSI. And in that interview, you said X. Now, some military judges will not let you proceed in this way. My understanding is that they object to the members hearing the recording itself before the witness authenticates the recording and acknowledges the prior statement. To me, it is not much different than the attorney reading from the witness's written statement, which is permitted, but there you have it. I think another concern the military judges might have is that counsel will play the wrong thing or too much of it, and the members will hear something inadmissible and cause problems for the record. If the military judge will not let you proceed with playing the recording in open court, you must proceed similar to how you would refresh a witness's recollection. Instead of playing the clip, you give the witness the tools they need, such as a computer with headphones, 
to see or hear the clip privately. It's a little more cumbersome, and you lose the impact of the witness's prior statement being played out loud just as it was said, but it can accomplish the same point. The questions are all essentially the same as we previously discussed. That was your voice, it was from the interview, and you said X. So that is proving up the prior statement with the witness. Sometimes the prior statement may not be recorded. Perhaps it's something they told a friend or a coworker. Or maybe it is recorded, but you believe it will have a greater impact with the fact finder if the prior statement comes in from another witness, like an OSI agent. Another example of when you may want to prove up an inconsistency is when dealing with impeachment by omission. For example, let's say you've got a witness who testifies about something at trial that, when specifically asked about it by investigators in an interview months earlier, the witness made no mention of it. They left it out completely. You can try and prove up the omission through the witness by having them listen or view the entire interview in court, but that will likely be ineffective, time-consuming, and most likely objectionable under MRE 403. So although you could prove it up with the witness you are impeaching, you may not want to. You may instead want to call the investigator from the interview. You'll have to have the investigator available, which is a matter of pretrial prep that we discussed before, and you'll likely want to orient the investigator prior to testifying as to the specific time hacks relevant to your point, if there are any. Afford the agent a chance to review the recording and his or her notes and his or her report, and perhaps even give them the chance to review the whole interview. In other words, you are effectively telling the investigator, at least on this one point, exactly what you intend to ask and preparing them with the correct answer. As I mentioned earlier, just because you can prove up the prior statement with the witness you are impeaching doesn't always mean you should. It may be more effective through another witness. Perhaps the gist of what you are proving up is a complex description of events from the witness you are impeaching, and it's just easier to prove it up with someone who can summarize it. You can prove up things like this by calling another witness who is aware of the prior statements. Going back to the text message from the first example, for instance, you may decide that calling the witness who received the text message will have a greater impact. You would then call the witness in your case in chief to say, one, I got this message, two, I got it from the witness, and three, the message said X. The witness may not remember the message verbatim, so you'll want to be prepared to refresh his or her recollection. Also, there's nothing wrong with refreshing the recollection before trial or before they testify if you hope to avoid the refreshing recollection exercise. The other situation I mentioned was when there is no recorded statement, or even if there is one, the witness played no part in creating it. In other words, it involves prior statements by the witness that A, the witness did not write down, and B, are not otherwise recorded. Usually these are verbal statements made to third parties. They may still be written down in some way, such as statements to police that are summarized in police reports or in agent notes, or statements to the sexual assault nurse examiner which is now documented in the SANE's report. For these, just like the last few examples we discussed, all you can do with the witness you are impeaching is to confront them on whether or not they made the statement. If they confirm that they made the prior inconsistent statement, you're done. If they deny it or they claim they don't remember, you do not get to prove that up until you get a later witness who can speak to that prior statement, either in your case in chief or on cross of another witness. Note that if it is on cross of a government witness, you may have to ask the questions of the witness like it is a direct examination if you have left the scope of their direct examination. If you are relying on someone to prove up a prior inconsistent statement, but that person merely heard the statement and did not record it, 
you are going to want to do everything you can to get them to record it so that you can perhaps use it to refresh their recollection later. Remember, as you come across all these statements, it may be a long time before they get to trial and the witness may forget, or they may not remember precisely. That may mean recording your own interview with the witness's consent, of course. It could be obtaining testimony at an Article 32 from the witness or at a motions hearing, or simply getting them to write it down to memorialize the prior inconsistent statement. You need that in case you need to refresh the witness's recollection at trial to prove up the statement. And you'll want to prep the witness on that prior testimony. With all the work that goes into finding and identifying and preparing for cross-examination on prior inconsistent statements, losing the opportunity to confront the witness or to prove up that prior inconsistent statement at trial can be a bitter pill to swallow when you know that you could have preserved it if you'd been forward-looking during your pretrial prep. Okay, before I sign off, I would like to return to a related topic that was raised in a previous episode. Hopefully you will recall that we previously discussed gathering ammunition for impeachment with prior and consistent statements and developing a case strategy to ensure that you are using only the appropriate ammunition and that you're careful not to open any doors unintentionally. Well, this past summer, the AFSICA decided United States v. King, which I read shortly before recording this episode, and it prompted me to revisit this issue. You will recall that we discussed how cross-examination can carry some risks that it will open the door to additional evidence that is harmful to your case. Specifically, when we discussed the government offering up prior consistent statements to rebut any assertion of recent motive to fabricate. In King, the defense cross-examined the complaining witness on several motives to fabricate the alleged sexual assault, most of which arose prior to her making any statement or any allegation regarding the offense but a couple happened afterwards, after she had made her initial allegation. The Afsika found no error in admitting the prior consistent statements that she'd made to her friend, her friend's family, and to law enforcement, because a prior consistent statement need not be made prior to all motives to fabricate, so long as it is made prior to one or more motives to fabricate raised on cross. The case highlights how difficult the call may be at trial for defense counsel, because it seems clear to me that the defense theory in King, was that the complainant's motive to lie arose before she made the allegations at all, and the cross-examination merely went into the additional things that happened after she had made the allegation to point out that that same motive was maintained throughout and never abated. Essentially, her motive was that she was mad at her stepfather because he restricted her liberty and obstructed her ability to date her boyfriend. After she made the allegations, she was able to date her boyfriend, moved in with her boyfriend, and became engaged with her boyfriend. The trial court and FSICA found that those additional points raised on cross, dating, moving in together, and becoming engaged, were each additional separate potential motives to fabricate and therefore warranted the admission of the prior inconsistent statements. So I bring up this case just to once again stress that defense counsel need to be really thoughtful on creating their cross-examinations so as not to open any doors. It can be a very difficult call. For instance, in this case, United States v. King, I likely would have made the same call as the defense. It seems to me that the defense counsel was simply pointing out that the complainant had a motive, the motive predated the initial allegation, and then the additional points were just to drive home the fact that that motive to fabricate was maintained throughout the investigation and all the way up to trial. So I empathize with that defense team. I think the court got it wrong, but the court gets the last say, so there you are. Thank you for listening, 
and I hope it was helpful. Until we meet again, this is Daryl the Decap signing off. Check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always welcome. You can email me at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for all you do. I wish you the best of luck litigating your cases. skies drive the dark clouds far away and will you please say hello to the friends that I know it won't be long and they'll be happy to know that you saw me go I was